0: Man, All right. Hey, um, <clears throat> I, I want to share with you a, a devotion. Um, this faith comes from hearing. It's a Bible reading program we have, but this year we have put online a PDF. You can go on our website. And it's a journal that uh, I had the privilege of putting together over 11 years ago when I was in Florida, 20 different writers. And I don't know if you've been reading or not, this is just some powerful stuff, life-changing stuff. I mean, these people wrote some you know, God's hand was on them. And I just want to share uh, something I read this week. Um, it was day 21, sacrifice, the mission of Jesus. Uh, guarantee your future. So just listen up. Starts off with John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. For not so I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then... The guy writes in Devo, What does it mean to guarantee your future? I don't believe that your future is based on the house that you live in, the car you drive, the clothes you wear. It's not based on your education or the job you have. It's not based on the friends you hang with or the person you marry. I believe that we guarantee our future, our eternal future, through the relationship we build with Christ. I found myself in a courtroom this week. Sadly, unfortunately, I am going through a divorce. While I was sitting there listening to both attorneys argue about this and that, and then sometimes the judge decided there were a few things he wanted to add to, all he could think was, what a sad waste of time. All of this is meaningless. In Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, we're told, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, I know that my future is not based on anything that is going to happen in the courtroom. My future is completely based on the relationship that I have built with Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Mark Buchanan writes in his book, Things Unseen, our future, who we're becoming, where we're going matters more than our past. I'm going to read that again. Some of you need to lean in on that one. Our future, who we're becoming, where we're going matters more than our past, where and who we have been. Our future has more power to name us and define us than our past. Consummation swallows origins. Destiny, not history, is the ultimate ground of our identity. How does a prostitute named Rahab, a Moabite outsider named Ruth, an incestuous schemer named Tamar, and a doctoress named Bathsheba end up in the birth line of Jesus? Because in God's economy, the person we become, not the person we have been, is the person we truly are. And he writes, wow, how encouraging is that? Doesn't matter where we've been, what we've been through, no matter what we have to endure in life, Jesus wants us now, and he can guarantee our future. Father God, I thank you for Gary and that devotion he wrote 11 years ago in a very difficult time. I thank you that 11 years from now, God, 11 years from then, we can read it and be encouraged, God. That's about who we're becoming, not where we've been, and that our past does not define our future. And so, God, I pray that today in this room that your presence will fall in a powerful way, God, that we will lean in, Open up our hearts and minds to you. I pray that your word that is alive and active will do what only it can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's do this. Week three in our series, Money Matters. And it's been a, it's been a fun ride so far, hasn't it? And you know what? No, you know what has been crazy and pretty surprising to me about this series of Money Matters? The fact that I've gotten so many positive comments, <clears throat> And so much encouragement the last few weeks about these conversations. I mean, go figure, we are in church and we're talking about money and people are actually getting into it, right? That is pretty crazy. It's a God thing. And again, what we're doing in the series is we are unpacking a formula that will lead to us being financially freed up. And remember that to be freed up financially means to no longer be a slave to money. To no longer be a slave to money worries, money wants, money stress, money desires, money worship, money lenders. And the principle is simply this, attitude plus principles plus practices equals freed up financially. In week one, we we unpacked the first variable in that equation, attitude, which led to us making five declarations. Uh, that for many of us represent a new way of thinking, of looking at money. And repeat here, after me, here's the declarations we made. Money is not the answer. Okay, okay, repeat after me. And usually when I say repeat after me, that means you like repeat after me, right? But I know you're with me and who knows where we're going, right? All right. Uh, money, is not the money is not the answer. I am rich. None of, None of my money or stuff belongs to me. It's okay to enjoy money. Okay to enjoy money. Money, can to money can lead to real life. Amen. Last week we began looking at the second variable in the, in the formula, principles, uh, the essential foundations. And I, I, I try to drive home um, as we started, the importance of building on a solid foundation by showing you some images of buildings that were built in a bad salve, a bad foundation that led to a collapse, like this one in 11-story apartment building in Shanghai. Workers came in in the morning, that sucker was standing up the day before, like, oh my, that's kind of hard to work on. And, and then you have this five-story department store in Ghana um, uh, that completely collapsed because it had a poor foundation. And And, and so, these principles we're talking about are foundational to us being freed up financially, all right? And last week we looked at gratitude. That's what we looked at, gratitude. And, and, and here's, here's the deal. These four principles are the only solid foundation for you and I to build our financial lives in a way that God desires and God wants. And if we don't use this foundation eventually our finances will collapse, either in this life or when we stand before our king one day and we left this earth thinking we were doing pretty good financially and he lets us know, you know what, you were building on sand all along. You know, you weren't building a foundation that was rich in me. Gratitude. Now gratitude is a foundational principle that God's people must drive down deep in order to be freed up financially. And the force and the power that will drive gratitude deeper and deeper into the bedrock of our minds and hearts is what? It's remembering. Remembering what? Remembering the same thing that God asked his people through Moses to remember as they were leaving the land of lack, the wilderness, to move into the land of plenty, to remember, first of all, that God is your provider, right? That all the stuff that you have, all your toys, all your things, you have them because God provided them for you. And number two, to remember, that, to remember that, that God is your redeemer. To remember that you were once slaves, that, that you were once dead in your sins. Like we sang, and then what did God do? He kicked down the wall, right? You know, he, he lit up the shadows, right? He, he broke down every lie, right? And it's only because of God's mercy and grace and Jesus' broken body and shed blood that you were rescued, that you were saved, that you were redeemed, Question Are you grateful or are you taking for granted what God has provided for you? And everyone in this room lives in America, right? We're Americans, right? He's provided for us richly. And are you taking for granted your salvation? I mean, could you or should you be more grateful for both? I mean, like, 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 where do you fall on the gratitude meter, right? You know, are you like totally grateful? Or do you think you could be more grateful for God's provision and more grateful for your redemption in him? You know what? I I have some work to do, right? I I, I can take them for granted. I mean, the stuff we sang today, that's incredible, right? God's love and what he did. Now, this morning, uh, we're going to look at the last three principles in being freed up financially. And the first is contentment. Turn to the person to your right and left and say contentment. Contentment. In an old black and white movie named Key Largo, a gangster played by Edward G. Robinson, whose life is filled with violence and deceit, holds a family hostage. And someone asks, hey, what is driving you to this kind of life? And he was not a very reflective guy. He didn't know how to answer. And then one of the hostages, played by Humphrey Bogart, suggests an answer. I know what you want. You want more. And Robinson's face brightens. Yeah, that's it. That's what I want. I want more. I understand this guy believed the myth of more. The myth of what? The myth of more. The myth that one day more will be enough. And listen, if we believe the myth of more, we will spend our life looking for the next thing. Now, it might be a car or a promotion or the love of a beautiful woman. It might be depending on her age, an iPod, a BMW, or a Tickle Me Elmo. But regardless what it is, here's the deal. We'll keep hoping that the next thing will be it. Will be it. Will be the source of satisfaction and contentment. And for a few minutes, perhaps days it is. But then it wears off. And listen, it always wears off. Tell the person to your right and left, it always wears off. Now, now Michael Droshen wrote a book about a man whose name became synonymous with the hunger for more. He wanted more wealth, so he built one of the greatest financial empires of his day. He wanted more pleasure, so he seduced and paid for the most glamorous women money could buy. He wanted more adventure, so he, he, he broke airspeed records and designed, built, and piloted the world's most unique aircraft. He wanted more power. So he acquired political clout that was the envy of senators. He wanted more glamour, so he crashed the Hollywood scene, owned studios, and courted stars. And the Drosian tells us how this man's life ended. He was a figure of gothic horror, ready for the grave, emaciated, only 120 pounds stretched over his six-foot, four-inch frame. Thin, scraggly beard that reached midway onto his sunken chest, hideously long nails and grotesque yellow corkscrews. Many of his teeth were black, rotten stumps. A tumor was beginning to emerge from the side of his head. He had innumerable needlewalks because of his drug addiction. Howard Hughes, a billionaire junkie. And listen, here's the question. If Howard Hughes had pulled off one more deal, had made one more million, tasted one more thrill, would it have been enough? Now, now she was the most admired and desired woman on the face of the planet. I mean, every woman envied her, and every guy wanted her. She had beauty, wealth, money, and so much fame that even today, decades after her death, people still know her name. But tragically, Marilyn Monroe died alone, died of her own hand. And here's the question. If she had one more hit movie, one more magazine cover... Had one more sexual relationship with a powerful man, would it have been enough? I think we all know the answer. Now, there's a book in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, written by a guy who was really devoted to this myth of more, to this pursuit of the, of the next thing. And he was in a unique position to go after it. You see, Solomon had wealth, power, and abilities that exceeded anyone else alive. And throughout his memoir, the book of Ecclesiastes, this one phrase keeps coming up, I devoted myself to. I understand, this guy didn't dabble, right? I mean, he he went all in, right? He was totally devoted to the pursuit of it, of the next thing, of more. He writes, I I thought in my heart, Ecclesiastes 2.1, come now, I I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. I, I mean... Solomon threw such lavish parties that one day's food supply for the palace included 30 head of cattle, 100 sheep, 500 bushels of flour, deer, gazelle, and exotic poultry. He surrounded himself with beauty, parks, gardens, and vineyards. He constructed a palace so magnificent that it defied description. His home took a crew of 150,000 guys, 13 years to build. Yeah, it was a really nice house. He liked music. And since there was no iPods, iTunes, Pandora, Spotify back then, right, he collected an orchestra of every known instrument and drafted drafted all the finest singers in his day to serenade him during mealtime. He accumulated 1,000 wives and concubines. He indulged his every appetite. Ecclesiastes 2.10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, refused my heart no pleasure, and he also tried outachieving other people. I mean, he built up the nation of Israel to the greatest prominence it would ever know. He earned 25 tons of gold every year. That's probably worth something, right? And after his lifelong pursuit of it, of more, of the next thing, here was his verdict. Ecclesiastes 4.8. I turned my head and saw yet another wisp of smoke on its way to nothingness. A solitary person, completely alone, no children, no family, no friends, yet working obsessively late into the night, compulsively greedy for more and more, never bothering to ask, Why am I working like a dog? Never having any fun. Maybe you need to ask yourself the same question. Who cares? It's just more smoke. Ecclesiastes 6 7. All of a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is what? Not satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Listen, for 3,000 years, Solomon has been telling God's people, has been warning God's people, warning you and I, sure, you can go ahead and try. You can walk down that road as far as you want. I did. But in the end, I, the smartest guy who ever lived, And who walked further down that wall, that road, than you ever will, found out that none of it was it. That none of it brought me satisfaction. It was all meaningless. Just a wisp of smoke. And you know what, Maple Grove? Maybe. Maybe our insatiable appetite, our unsatisfied desires, got any? Are telling us something. Very important. Listen, if we're never completely satisfied with all this world has to offer, maybe it means we're made for another world. And perhaps our contentment can be found in someplace else. Now contrast Solomon's pursuit for it, for more, uh, with another guy's pursuit of something better. Uh, A pursuit that led him to true and lasting contentment. A guy who considered all his worldly accomplishment and achievements garbage that he might gain that which is better, Christ. Check out what Paul wrote from a prison cell. Now here's Solomon in a palace, right? 150,000 guys, 13 years to build, and he has no contentment. Here's Paul in a prison cell, and he's drowning in contentment. Here's what he writes. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Have you learned that yet? Maybe we need to lean in and listen to this guy, right? I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. <clears throat> I'll buy that book. that makes make a great infomercial at night, right? And for $19.99, it makes a great Christmas gift, right? Okay. And just so special, you get two of them for free, Right? I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Ah, I don't know about you, i got some learning to do. <laughs> I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Which, by the way, is the most mistranslated verse in the Bible, right? That verse is talking about contentment. It's talking about through Christ I can endure everything and still be content, right? There are certain things I can't do, right? And it's not like, you know what? I know I can't sing well, but I can do all things through Christ. That ain't happening, right? You know, I have no rhythm at all. You know, I couldn't dance my way out of a wet, wet paper bag. But you know what? In Christ, I can do all things. That's not what that verse is saying. It's saying something better, I think. So no matter what you're going through, no matter of difficulties, plenty or want, you're still content. I think that's much better. You see, Paul arrived at a place that Solomon never did. Paul, Paul found it, and it was Christ. Now, understand, contentment, Paul says, is an acquired skill. He says, I learned to be content, right? And this acquired skill, I'll tell you where it's built. It's built in having a real, intimate, growing relationship with Jesus Christ, all right? Now, I'll just say this real quick. And If you're not reading your Bible on a regular basis, you don't have one, all right? Because you're not talking to him. You're not listening to him, right? Okay? But that's where you get it, right? An intimate relationship with Christ gives you contentment no matter what. Philip Yancey writes of a spiritual seeker who interrupted his busy life of going after it to spend a few days at a monastery. I hope your stay is a blessed one, said the monk who showed him to his simple cell. If you need anything, let us know. And we'll teach you how to live without it. (laughs) bring it. Bring it. All right. Paul writes, I've learned the secret to be content whatever the circumstances. Know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And listen, if contentment is not driven down deep into our hearts and minds, it will be impossible to be freed up financially, right? Because we're going to believe the myth of more, right? We're going to, we're going to, in the myth of more, it will drive our spending, right? It will drive our saving. It will drive our giving, right? Because we're looking for this elusive contentment that can be found only in Christ. Get it? The next foundational principle is trust. David. Right? Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, now, David was a warrior, right? So, I mean, David valued chariots and horses, right? He valued swords and soldiers, right? He valued those things. But he did not trust in those things. See the difference? Yeah. David wanted him some horses, let me tell you. He wanted, he wanted some chariots, right? There's a difference. And when it says trust in the name of, and the name of means The person and the purposes, right? So David said, hey, some people trust in this stuff, but we trust in the person and the purposes of God, right? That's where he places his trust in. On July 30th, 1956, President Dwight D. Eisenhower approved a joint resolution of the 84th Congress to make In God We Trust the official motto of the United States and to require that all currency have that written on it. And a year later, it was right? If you pull out your dollar bill, look, I try to look at a quarter this morning, man, my eyes have gotten old. I know it was there, but I I just like, I need a magnifying glass, right? And I I know it seems crazy today, right? But but our nation and our political leaders actually were were declaring their trust in God. To be honest, they had good reasons for doing so. Here's why, okay, think about it. Think about life in the mid-1950s. Although World War II was finally over, World conflict continued. A war erupted in Korea. Another would soon erupt in Vietnam. And these occurred in the context of a larger war that raged without dropping bombs. The Cold War was being fought between two superpowers, the United States and the former Soviet Union. Two ideologies, democracy and communism, went head to head. The Soviets championed atheism and told their children, God does not exist. And in America, we were declaring the opposite, in God we trust. And while this eternal conflict raged between these two belief systems, another war raged at home around the nation's motto. You see, in God we trust became a hotly debated issue between Americans. In fact, the conflict continues. And over the years, lawsuits have been filed against the motto by individuals and organizations claiming that it violates the Establishment Clause of the Constitution right? You know, that our federal government cannot establish a state religion. But every lawsuit has failed because the, the courts have determined that it is not establishing a state religion. Yet in God we trust is, is not merely a, a motto, it's about a way of life. And, and listen, trust, like gratitude and contentment, is a foundational principle that we must embrace if we're to be freed up financially. You know, you got, you got a dollar bill on you? Just take a look at it. Pull that coin. Go in your neighbor's purse if you don't have one or wallet. <laughs> Hand your neighbor your wallet, by the way, right? That's not an idol to you. Hand it to him, right? Would you have to be comfortable? Like, what's in that sucker right there, that little temple? Right? It's a temple. Okay? You're right there. In, in God, And God, we trust. It's on our coins. It's on our money. But do we? I mean, can you and I say the same thing and actually be telling the truth? In God, I trust. And if you said that on the lie detector, <laughs> I mean, would it would it? What would the response be? Yeah, I, I think we tend to pull more of our trust in our jobs, our paychecks, our insurance, our credit cards, our savings, our investment, our education, etc., etc., etc. Our own modern-day versions of horses and chariots. Now, it's okay to—I'm not saying don't value those things or those things don't have value, right? but we don't put our trust in those things, right? Don't put your trust in your job. Don't put your trust in your money. Don't put your trust in your education. You can only put your trust in God if it's to stand. Besides everything we have, who gave it to us, right? Have you ever been without a job, place to call home, a car to drive, food to eat? You ever been at the end of your ropes not knowing how you would survive just one more day? For honest, many of us have been and still are consumed at times with worry because we've not learned to trust God and listen as we consider trust this foundational principle for being freed up financially I want to look at two important ways that you and I can drive deeper trust into the bedrock of our hearts and minds number one trust that God's got you right he's got you I don't know if it's good grammar but I like it I got you Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? And this little sermonette, Jesus three times commands them to stop worrying. He doesn't suggest or advise it. He commands them. And the grammar is such that stop what you are already doing. And listen. That wasn't an easy thing for them to do. In his book, Too Much, Living with Less in a Land of More, Gary Johnson writes, This would have been hard for them to do. Everyday life in the ancient world was worse than anything we know today, even compared to life in developing nations. People lived in dark one-room houses that typically had no windows. They were smoky because of the fire in the middle of the room. And they're damp and smelly because of leaky roofs. The odor would get quite bad because people smelled the sweat, urine, and feces. The streets were full of mud and human and animal waste. How could they not worry over the next meal or the next drink of clean water? How could they not worry about getting another cloak after the one they had worn out has become nothing but a thin rag? Jesus continues, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your only father feeds them, are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life, right? Worry does the opposite. It actually subtracts hours from our life. Chest pains, acid reflux, ulcers, blood pressure, and many other things medically. It just tears us up. And why do you worry about your clothes? Or fill your own blank in there. See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans run after these things and your only father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow you worry about self. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Ain't that the truth? You see, worry erodes this foundational principle of trust. Worry declares that, that God's not trustworthy, that, that his word is not reliable. Worry is very unproductive, right? And worry is not trusting God in the present, even though He's been so faithful in the past. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name, the person, and purposes of the Lord our God. Remember, we need to trust that God's got us. Turn to the person to your right and left and say, God's got you. God's got you. So that we're making financial decisions based on trusting God instead of worry. Amen? Amen. Number two, trust in what God tells you in regards to money and finances. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. You see, we need to trust what God tells us because a lot of what God tells us, A, we don't want to hear, <laughs> B, it's not what the world is telling us, right? It's not going to make sense. It's like, wait a second, that seems countercultural, uh-huh, right? That seems upside down. No, actually, it's right side up. We're upside down, right? And so you got to trust that it's true. Like, you got to trust God when he tells you money's not the answer. You got to trust God when he tells you that, that uh, you're rich. You got to trust God when he tells you that none of your stuff, I, I know you wax it, you paint it, you, you do everything else, it's not yours, Right? You need to trust God when he tells you, here's where you find true contentment. You need to trust God when he tells you about the relationship between your heart and and, and your money. You need to trust God when he he tells you things about about debt and and about saving for the future. You need to trust God when he tells you things about that you need to give your first fruits to him and not rip them off, right? That's what Malachi talked about, right? Will a mere mortal rob God? You rob me. I tell you what, if I'm going to rob somebody, I think God is not a good choice. I'm just saying. You're going to, rob, you're going to knock, knock a bank off. Don't rob God. But you ask, how are we robbing you? God? <laughs> and tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That was the temple where God's people gathered to worship back then. That there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there'll not be room enough to store it, right? That takes trust to give God your first fruits, right? God, let me take care of all my stuff. There's a car bill I got to pay. <laughs> car broke down, refrigerator broke down. God, let me take care of that. And, and oh, yeah, God, I got to get my kids to college. Let me take care of that, God. And, no, it takes trust, doesn't it, right? But God tells you, he's, He'll, he'll, he'll be, you'll be all right, right? He says, I, I got you, right? Okay, some trust Harriets. Inher- <laughs> that's chariots that had hair on them as a camouflage in war. (laughs) Some, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Listen, to ensure that trust is a solid foundation in our lives, we need to trust that he's got us, and we need to trust what he tells us. Get it? Good. And now we're coming to the fourth and final principle to being freed up financially. Humility. It was the first sin ever committed. It wasn't by Adam and Eve, it was by Satan, right? When he wanted to be like God. When he wanted to have God's status. I understand the first sin committed was, was pride, and so was the second, right? Eve wanted to be like God. And listen, pride and status and self-promotion remains a sin in our lives as well. Pride goes before a fall and a hearty spirit before destruction. When you talk about humility, at this foundation principle, I, I want us to consider the concept of status. Status is the position of an individual in relation to another or others. It's a noun. Especially in regards to social or professional standing. I understand, if we're ever going to be freed up financially, we must deal with this issue of status. Now, because much of what our culture spends money on, goes in debt for, is driven by pride, self-promotion, and status. You see, we want it to turn heads. We want to impress. We want to be noticed. Friday morning, I put this on my Facebook wall. Sermon help. What are some things that people spend a lot of money on, even go in debt for, that are really just status symbols? Meant to turn heads and get people to notice us, telling them that we have arrived and are hip, cool, super fly, and trendy. Uh, 28 people responded with things like expensive cars, big houses, designer clothes, fancy watches, big diamonds, elaborate weddings, education, exotic vacations, the latest electronics, club memberships, swimming pools, pricey sunglasses. Uh, uh, One guy on the internet, I I love what he said, you know, um, extreme outdoor wear as casual wear. Right? He wrote this. Whether it rains or shines in New York City, the yuppie population looks like they are prepped for the journey from Mount Everest base camp, right? <laughs> They're going from their house to their car, but they got all their gear on. They're ready, right? Because look at what I'm wearing. you see that right there? I'm not going to cover that up. I well, want you see it. And one of my friends wrote, um, boats, campers, I think may fall into that category. Also, vacations can as well. Not to say you can't have this stuff, but people can go way overboard with everything mentioned and the responses in this post. And then uh, Kevin Danker, a former elder here from years ago, moved to Williamsburg. I like what Kevin said. I'm driving a BMW rental, and I'm feeling myself wanting people to be impressed. It's sad. It's not worth the devilish behaviors it comes with. Do people ever make purchases to up their status? And does that ever get them in trouble financially? I and mean, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like, right? <laughs> it's about the label, right? You know, and I'm not like a big fashion person, you know, even this morning. Like, I would asked May Lee at one time, hey, what, like, what clothes are they wearing now? You know, she said, like, there's a little whale symbol that people wear, like vineyard, whatever vineyard vines, and 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 so this morning I was looking up, but I I was looking for whaling company, right? You know, and I'm going like it was like seafood. Now I like seafood, like where are these shirts? You know, you know, yeah, but apparently that's what you want to have vineyard vine. Let me see that. Well, you know, you know, I, I remember when I first talked about something years ago, how 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 good I am, you know, fashion wise. I I, and I said Tommy Hill finger, right? When you wear your Tommy Hilfiger clothes, you know, that's just a clue. I do nothing, right? I get my clothes at Sam's or something unless my wife buys them for me, all right? You know, but it can get us into trouble, right? It can get us into trouble because we want, hey, look look at my label. You know, like, what's your tag say? Oh, it says here. I got these. Oh, what country club do you go to? Where do you go to school? Where are your kids going to college? Oh, they're not? Oh, my gosh. They're just going to go out and work. It's just these status things. There was a guy who had more status than anyone who ever walked the face of the earth. You know what he did with his status? He emptied himself of it. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing. That literally in Greek means he emptied himself. He was still God, but he emptied himself, saying, you know what, I'm not gonna demand my title or my rank I'm not going to demand that people serve me. I'm not going to demand the privileges of being God. I'm I'm going to empty myself of all that status. I'm not even going to have a place where I can even lay my head at night. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He emptied himself. And what did God do? What God always does, right? He lifted him up. And God says, when we humble ourselves, right, God will lift us up. And let me tell you two ways that we can fight this status thing. One is this prayer I found this week, attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It's a a of on this board. This is like a really powerful prayer. "Oh, oh, Oh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear my prayer. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being rebuked, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being criticized, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being sus- Deliver me, Jesus, that others may be loved more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That in the opinions of the world may increase and I decrease. Jesus, grant me the desire, the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. What up? A- Hey, if you want a copy of that prayer, shoot me an email, steveatthegrove.org, and I'll shoot it to you. So you pray that prayer, and then you claim this truth about your status, right? Because I, I can tell you, you want something to up your status? And Jesus Christ, he is up your status. I mean, what's your tag say, right? See, in Christ, Jesus has upgraded our status. Peter says it right here. You are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. I know they're not going to talk about your wedding like the royal wedding, right? Okay? Not going to get as much coverage. But you're royal. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. I belong to God. And as John said, how great. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. What's your tag say? My tag says, I'm a child of God. I don't need a whale, I don't need a check mark, I don't need a frog, whatever's out there, I don't even know, right? I don't need that, right? My tag says, I'm a child of God. I'm a son of the king of the universe, right? I mean, that's a pretty good status, And when we get our status in God, we don't have to run around looking for it somewhere else because it's just going to be empty in the end. To become financially free, we have to drive deep these four foundational principles into the bedrock of our hearts and minds. Gratitude, trust, contentment, and humility. You see, we'll never be freed up until we are truly grateful for God's provision and God's redemption. Truly grateful for the blood that was shed for us That in a few minutes we're going to celebrate in communion, we'll hold a cracker and a cup that people have been doing for 2,000 years to remember what Jesus did for our salvation So we go home, right? And we'll never be grateful unless we remember that. And we'll never be grateful until we're content with what we have. And we won't be content with what we had until we learn to trust God, right? Uh, Trust that he's got us, trust what he tells us. And we'll never trust God until we humble ourselves before him and find our status in him. See, these these four principles all work together, right? You know, and without this, that's what we're talking about this first, right? Because the other, other stuff doesn't even matter without these. This will drive the principles that we're going to talk about later. Drive the practices, rather, we're going to talk about later. Let's stand and pray. God, oh, you're so good. And God... God, thank you for upping my status. God, thank you that I can be content in you. Thank you, God, that we can trust you, that you got us. It may not look like it. The waves may be high. The sky may be dark. The wind may be blowing. But God, you got us. You promised us. And God, thank you, Lord, that you've given your word to tell us how we can live and how we can handle our finances in a way that honor you. And God, help us all to start chasing the next thing, chasing more, thinking status and stuff is going to give us value, when our ultimate value is in you. And to Jesus, may you be the, the foundation, the bedrock, the cornerstone of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.